Thank you very much, Mark, for your welcome today, but also for this weekend. It's been a great privilege uh, for me to be with you. Uh, I've met many of you, not all, I'm, I'm afraid, but it's been a real privilege to meet uh, so many of you and hear your stories. Maybe I'll hear some others uh, later today. And it'll also give me uh, a heart, I suppose, for Letter Kenny and for the work of the gospel here through your church and to remember to pray for you. Uh, this morning I have uh, one of our former elders in Drogheda preaching in Dundalk, a chap from Nigeria, and the little church will be meeting there just about now, and I also think of them. So uh, in partnership we, uh, in Dundalk and here in Letterkenny, we are partners in the work of the gospel. So thank you, uh, thank you also to Judith for looking after me uh, and, and the girls. Thank you anyway for your kindness, thank you for your welcome and for the fellowship. Uh, before we come to God's word, well, let, let me read just two verses and then we will pray together. Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily encompass, uh, uh, entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author. That's the the pioneer. It's the same word exactly, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray as we come to God's word, and then we will come to these words. Let's pray. Father, once more we pray that your Holy Spirit would come to be our teacher so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and the response of our lives would be pleasing in your sight. For your great name's sake. Amen. I can't remember how many years ago it is, but I remember uh, travelling by car and listening on the radio uh, to the Olympics, they were on the marathon race, and my abiding memory is of the, the British runner Paula Radcliffe, who was the favourite uh, for the gold medal, uh, sitting in tears by the roadside six miles from the finish. She had started very well, but she ran out of steam, and she stopped her race in tears and did not, did not make it to the end. And as you know, the great theme of the letter to the Hebrews is the Christian life is like a marathon race. Or as Mark was reminding the children, it's like a pilgrim on a journey, a long journey towards a goal. And the important thing is, first of all, to start on that journey and then to keep going in that journey all the way to the end. And I still vividly remember as a, an older teenager struggling with the call of Christ in my life. I'd heard the gospel, I saw friends who were Christians, but I still feared to take that step of faith. Maybe some of you are in that position right now. And there were different things that troubled me, but one of the things that troubled me was this. How could I ever keep it up? It's one thing to start the Christian life, but I I feared making a start and then not being able to keep it up. Well, that's the great theme of the letter to the Hebrews because we're reminded, as Mark has already said, As the pioneer of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ has already blazed that trail open home to heaven. And as the great priest of our salvation, he sustains us on the way, he strengthens his servants as they travel. Uh, 
But in this passage, Hebrews 12, verse 2, we learn that he's also the finisher or the perfecter of our faith, who has every intention of bringing us safe home to that city whose builder and maker is God, as he calls it later on, and to that joyful assembly of the people of God, the, the, joy, the firstborn in heaven. And it's a doctrine that theologians have called over the years the perseverance of the saints. And there are two sides to it, I suppose. First of all, it's a very comforting doctrine to know that the God who saves us will, wants to keep us and bring us all the way home to heaven. And so, for example, in Psalm 73, we read these lovely words, You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me home to glory. There was a psalmist who was struggling in his faith. He, he had almost lost it, he tells us at the start. But he is brought back to this God, the God who is going to bring him uh, safe home uh, to glory. And then Paul, when he writes to a little church in Philippi in the New Testament, says something similar. He said, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. When God begins a work in our lives, uh, when he saves us, when he welcomes us into his family, he has no intention of letting us go and bringing us safe home to heaven. So it's a very comforting doctrine. But at times it can also be a somewhat puzzling and perplexing doctrine. Uh, not least, for example, because of people that we know. I still remember when I came to Christian faith, I went to Queen's as a student in my first year. It was during that year that I uh, came to faith in Christ. Uh, I went along to the Christian Union and there was a chap at the front who was the president of the Christian Union, a very inspirational chap. But by the end of my university course, he had forsaken the gospel and was gone in a very different direction. And it was very puzzling. This man who was such a keen Christian, it seemed, now had forsaken the faith that he once professed. I can think of a minister of the gospel. Once preached the gospel, today denies the faith that he once professed. And I can think of other friends. And I'm sure you have had a similar experience. It was a very puzzling thing, isn't it? When someone who seems to be such a, a firm Christian and a leader of others turns back and forsakes the faith. And the second thing, I suppose, that is troubling is the scary bits of scripture that Mark read this morning. I, I wonder, did you notice what he read? Uh, one bit said that those who are enlightened by the gospel and have tasted of the blessings of the Spirit yet fall away to deny Christ. There is no forgiveness for him. There is no hope back. So that's a very scary thing, isn't it? And it also speaks earlier on of Moses uh, and, and the children of Israel. It said, through unbelief, the children of Israel, many of them fell short and never entered the promised land. They set out on the journey, but they didn't make it to the end. And then I think there's a third reason. That is, we sense our own weakness, do we not? We're Christians, we, we want to follow Christ, but we're very conscious that we're weak. We feel the power of temptation. We, we have struggles in this life. Things don't uh, come easily to us. Uh, we feel the lure of the world around us. We're aware of the subtlety of the evil one. And we wonder, how on earth can someone like me make it all the way to the end? We feel our great weakness. And perhaps there's a fourth reason. Uh, that is, we may have heard People say in a sort of glib and presumptuous way, oh, once you're saved, you're always saved. And they use that phrase as an excuse to live a life of disobedience. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the story of Rasputin, the, the Russian monk. Uh, he took this idea to an extreme. And he said, the more I sin, the more I magnify the grace of God because he, he forgives me all the more. And so he thought, the, the, the more I can sin, the more I glorify God. <coughs> Of course, he was being mischievous when he said that, 
But that is how some people can speak. And clearly that is not how the Bible speaks. So the question we want to think about this morning is, is it possible for a true Christian to fall away from salvation? Can we be sure that when we set foot on that path, that, that road that leads home to heaven, that we will finally enter the gates of heaven? And it's not an easy question, and it divided some of the greatest uh, leaders of the Christian church down through the ages. You've heard of George Whitfield, who was involved in the evangelical revival in, uh, both in, in America and in, in Britain. And you've heard of John Wesley, who is associated with the founding of the, the Methodist movement. Two great friends, two great evangelists, but they fell out over this issue. Uh, George Whitfield, he emphasised on the one hand the sovereignty of God, that when God saves a person, he will keep them all the way to the end. Uh, John Wesley, he emphasised our human responsibility. We are called to persevere and to live the Christian life and to obey, and if we don't, we will fall away from salvation. So here were two great men and great friends who for a while lost their friendship over this issue. Now, in the providence of God, they came back as very good friends and with great respect for each other. But nevertheless, this issue divided them for uh, quite a while. So before we find out what Hebrews says about the matter, let me, if you like, give a general principle to help us in our thinking. I teach church history in in Dublin uh, during the term time, and we have students from all kinds of backgrounds, and some come from this denomination and some from that, and they come from different camps, and they get into theological arguments and very quickly end up in two camps over certain matters. So I always remind them that when I travel down from Drogheda to Dublin every week, I travel by train. And I reminded them the train travels on railway lines. And it always travels on two lines together. Never travels on one or the other. The two lines are parallel. And the only way that train arrives safely is when it stays on both lines at the same time. If it gets onto one line, we're in big trouble. You're you're going to crash. Now, someone has called it... uh, The young people may learn the word in in English at school, a, a word, a paradox, which means things that seem to be contradictory. But the word that is sometimes used, it's an antimony or two parallel truths. And there are parallel truths in Scripture. Sometimes Scripture speaks from a Godward perspective down this line. Sometimes it's speaking from a manward perspective down this line. Now, the two lines don't meet within our finite mind. They don't meet this side of heaven. And so we hold two truths together. Is God sovereign? Yes, that's this line. Are we responsible to obey and to follow Christ and to persevere? Yes. So which is true, perseverance or uh, human responsibility? Both. The Bible holds to both, one might say, both extremes. We we don't have a happy medium. We believe in both extremes. We hold on to both truths. So remember, don't set truths in the Bible against each other. Uh, So, for example, let me give you an example from somewhere else. It says uh, in the Bible, whosoever will may come. The gospel for everybody. All may come. The same Bible says, and the same Lord Jesus Christ says, no one can come unless the Father draws him. Okay? Uh, Jesus says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Uh, But he also says, my sheep hear my voice, and no one shall pluck them from my hand. Which of those things are true? Both things are true. So, remember there are parallel truths in Scripture. We hold on to both truths. We don't set them against each other. So, remember that general principle, and don't get into camps over these things. God is sovereign, but we are also responsible to obey and to follow and to exercise faith and obedience. Okay, so let's now uh, think of this question. How can we know with assurance that once we set foot on the Christian path that God will bring us safe home to that heavenly city, like Pilgrim in the story we read?
Four simple things. Here's the first one, uh, which chapter 6, verse 9 tells us, that scary passage that Mark read a moment ago. Perseverance is the mark of a true Christian. Here's what the writer says. Dear friends, though we speak like this, we are confident of better things in your case, the things that accompany salvation. What are the things that accompany salvation? Well, one of them is perseverance. That's the mark of a true Christian. A true Christian will persevere. Let, let's read chapter 3, verse 14. We who have come to share in Christ, if we hold to the end, our confidence we had at the first. Chapter 6, verse 11. Show diligence to the very end to make your hope sure. And so these difficult passages are not asking, uh, can a true Christian fall away? But they're saying, am I a true believer? Am I persevering in the Christian faith? Am I showing diligence all the way to the end? That is the mark of a true Christian. Okay, so perseverance is the mark of a Christian. Here's the second thing. Perseverance requires effort. We're never called to be passive in the Christian life. We're never called to say, you know, God has saved me and he's going to airlift me home to heaven and I can sit back in that assurance and, and, as it were, relax. The Christian life is a call to run the race, to fight the fight, to battle, to fight, to pray, to show diligence, uh, to uh, show energy in the Christian life. And the key quality, again, is perseverance. Listen to what it says about Moses. By faith Moses persevered, seeing him who was invisible. Of Jesus said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Chapter 10 says of the Christian life, you need to persevere so that you receive what was promised. Run with perseverance, the race that is set before us. So can you see how the Christian life is a life of effort, of energy, of work, of striving? I still remember uh, when I was at school, I, Mark, I know you were into the high jumping, I think it was. I used to uh, sprint a little bit. Uh, anything above 200 yards as it was in those days, or 200 metres nowadays, that was long distance to me. And so I always enjoyed the 100 yards and the 200 but I still remember the school 400-yard uh, race, and I was entered in it, and I thought to myself, there were about 12 or 15 of us, I thought to myself, uh, my, my gift is sprinting. If I get away ahead of all the other lads, get so far ahead, they'll not be able to catch me. So I sprinted off for 200 yards, and then blew up completely. And at this uh, embarrassing experience of all the other 12 or 13 lads running past me, and I think I came in second last. Because the important thing in a longer distance race is to persevere, to pace yourself, to keep going, not to dash off with great energy and then blow up, as it were. Now, the Christian life is the same, isn't it? The real quality that's required is perseverance to keep on going. And there can be no assurance of salvation in a life which is not actively seeking after the will and the purposes of God, because that's the mark of a true Christian. Here's the third thing. Perseverance is pursued in the fellowship of God's people. We're not meant to be uh, lonely, long-distance runners as we're running on our own. I, I enjoy bird watching, and uh, I was just down recently at Castle Espy, uh, enjoying watching the, the, the birds there, the, especially the, the geese and the ducks that come in. But you know that once a year the Brent geese fly into Strangford Lock, and I think something like 80% of the world's population of Brent geese are in Strangford Loch at a, t- a certain time of the year. So it's an amazing thing down the east coast of Dundalk and Drogheda. Nearly all of the world's rent geese are found there because of the, the, the this, I think it's algae or something that, that grow in Strangford Loch. 
But there's a, there's a lovely fact that zoologists have found out about Brent geese. Uh, the, first of all, you know they fly in formation. There's one, like a peloton and cycle racing, they, they, you know they have the one at the front. And they keep changing, the leader keeps changing. And there's always one at the front, and then he gets tired, and another or she, and then another one goes to the front. But all the way across, 2,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean, they honk. They're always honking, honking, honking. And the geologists were trying to work, what is this honking about? And they can find no other reason than that the lads behind are honking the one in front and saying, keep going, keep going. They're encouraging one another. They're honking each other on. And there's a great need, isn't there, in the church to honk each other on, to encourage each other. The writer of the Hebrews says, exhort one another daily while it is still today. Chapter 10, do not stop meeting together as is a habit of some, but consider how to spur one another on to love and to good works. So if you're struggling in the Christian life at the moment, it's so important that you stick in there with the fellowship because that's where you'll find encouragement. And if you see somebody else struggling, get alongside them. Give them a word of encouragement. Give them that spur to keep on going in the Christian life. Here's how James puts it in in his epistle. If someone wanders from the truth and one of you bring him back and turn a sinner from the error of his ways, you will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's so important to stick in with the fellowship of God's people and to keep on encouraging one another, honking one another while it is today. So I hope we'll hear plenty of honking in Letter Kenny over the coming weeks and months. But fourthly and finally, perseverance is ultimately the achievement of God. It is his work from start to finish. That's why he's called the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 13, may the God of peace work in you what is pleasing in his sight. So it's not so much us persevering with God, though of course we're called to do that, but much more important is that God perseveres with us. He's at work in us and for us and through us. He does not persevere for me. I cannot persevere in my own strength, but I persevere through God's powerful strength and energy at work within me. It's his work from start to finish. We depend on him all the way. And uh, this scary chapter that Mark read ends with a lovely picture. It's a, it's a rather difficult picture. But what the writer is reminding us is that our assurance of salvation is as certain as the character of God. Uh, let, let me read these difficult words again. He said, We who have fled to Jesus to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged, for we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and sure, which enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus went before us and entered on our behalf. It seems to be saying that Jesus, if you like, has bound this unbreakable rope of salvation around our waist. Uh, and then he's entered heaven on our behalf. And he's anchored the other end in a rock of God's unchanging promises and purposes. A, ro- a rope that will not break. We're anchored uh, to Christ. That's what he's really telling us. And what he's really saying is that God himself is the guarantor. That the youngest and the weakest and the most struggling, doubtful Christian believer will be held secure despite the powerful currents of temptation and the intimidating waves of doubt and fear and the fierce gales of opposition and secular propaganda and the treacherous rocks of death and judgment. That rope of salvation binds us to him and it will not break. He said we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And that's how the scariest chapter in Scripture ends with that assurance. It gives us these warnings so that we don't presume 
so that we don't become careless, but it gives us these great promises so that we can feel assured. So let's go back uh, to the original question. Who keeps whom? Let me finish with a little picture. I remember when my uh, middle boy, Peter, was born, we went for a walk out in the woods near where we live. And at one point we came to a point in the the woods where there was a river. Now, it wasn't a very deep river for me, but it was a very deep river for him because he was only a wee boy, I think maybe 18 months or two, two years old, something of that nature. But I still remember as we came to the river, I was holding him and he was clinging on around my neck. And we walked across the river to the other side and I was holding him, of course, and we got to the other side and he almost was choking me because he was holding on so tight as he looked down at the water flowing, he was a bit scared. And I was holding him. But I thought afterwards, which grip held him safe? Was it his grip on me or my grip on him? Well, here's how the psalmist puts it in uh, one of the psalms, Psalm 63. He said, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. We cling to Jesus by faith. And sometimes our faith gets weak and our grip gets weak. But we still want to cling to him by faith. But the thing that keeps us secure is not our clinging to him, but his strong arms upholding us. I used to, when I came to Christian faith, I was uh, encouraged to uh, get involved in Christian mission. And we went down to the beaches in County Down in Malayal. And there we tried to reach boys and girls with the gospel. And we tried to uh, sing simple choruses that they would understand that would make the gospel plain. And it was a lovely thing to see little boys and girls just at, you know, seven, eight and nine years old, trusting Jesus. And now, 40, 50, 60 years on, I still meet those now young mums and dads and they come to me and say, I came to faith on the beach in Malayal so many years ago and it's happened to me twice just this year. Little child trusting Jesus and he doesn't let them go. And here was one of the songs that we used to sing. Into the hands that were wounded to save me. Into the hands that are mighty to keep into the hands that will guard me and guide me. Saviour, my life, I yield. And as you entrust your life into his hands, he will not only welcome you and save you, but he will keep you and he will bring you safe home to that joyful assembly in that city whose builder and maker is God in the end. And as you in turn run with perseverance the race that is set before you. May God give to every single one of us the assurance that we're on that route and that God will keep us all the way to the end. And let us persevere and let's honk each other on the road as we do. Let's take a moment to pray. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect upon these tremendous themes, we want to say thank you for the one who is the pioneer of our salvation for the one who has blazed that trail home to heaven, for the one who has paid the price in full so that we need have no further fear or condemnation, but to know that we are accepted in your sight in Christ, but the one who also sustains us on the way as our great high priest as we come to him, the one who grants us grace to help in time of need. But thank you, Lord, that he's also the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. And yet, Lord, today we confess that we feel our weakness. Uh, So many of us are struggling at the moment with temptation and uh, the people around us and the things within. 
and we feel that the, the pull of the devil at times in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us alone in these circumstances. Thank you, Lord, for your word to sustain us. Thank you for your spirit to strengthen us. Thank you for your people who encourage us. Thank you for your promises that keep us ongoing and inspire us. And so, Lord, we simply pray today that as we leave this building, that we will be able to leave with the assurance that by faith we have made a start in that Christian life, that we have looked to Jesus by faith, the one who has paved the way home to God for us. And, Lord, may we know with assurance, too, that he will strengthen us on the way. And may we know, too, with confidence that as we persevere in that race, that he will bring us safe home to that joyful assembly. Lord, let these things be real in each of our lives for your great name's sake. Amen.